Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Jordan McPherson, and I'm a clinical pharmacist at Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, I'll be chatting with Tanya Smith, a clinical pharmacist at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by an independent medical education grant from Merck, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Sanofi Genzyme. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash manage IRAE. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get starting talking about today's topic, patient and provider education on immunotherapy and investment into collaborative care. Hi, Tanya. How are you today? Hey, Jordan. I am great. How about you? Me as well. I uh, thought we'd spend the time we have talking about education and, and we, you know, we dealt a lot with that in the, the presentation and I felt like, um, you know, we took a different approach and I think we talked about that at the beginning of the mid-year talk about how we were trying to be more practical, more patient-centered and, you know, patient education is such a big part of that. And, you know, I, I was in cl- uh, infusion today staffing and we were, I was walking in down the hall and I saw a quote on the wall ironically is misattributed to Aristotle, but it, it's a quote that kind of is interesting. It resonates with me. It's, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And I thought, man, that was such an interesting quote about how the things that we do in clinical practice kind of shape how our attitude is toward not only patient care, but also how we invest the patients in their own care. And, you know, I, I thought that really resonated. So I, I wanted to, to kind of just mention, I, I've known you for many years uh, through Huntsman and now your work out in Atlanta in Georgia. But I think working on this project with you has helped me appreciate the different training paths we have come from, you know, even more so than before. Now you deal more on the inpatient side, right? And you describe your, your current practice, Tanya. So currently, I am working on an internal medicine team. I am the pharmacist for a dedicated teaching team at Emory, and my team gets internal medicine patients with problems from A to Z. And as part of that, we get patients who are oncology patients and are occasionally on immunotherapy. So even though I'm not seeing as much immunotherapy as I was when we were working together at Huntsman, I've still been really surprised to see how often um, IRAE specifically do come up. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting because you bring a, a fascinating perspective to this because you've kind of been in a place where IRAEs were commonplace and now you're in one where, you know, it's not as commonplace, but you're still seeing it and you've got that preparation to kind of be able to identify it. So, you know, I always find it interesting to think about how we view the role of the patient and how the patient's role has changed over the years and evolved. And, you know, coming from an oncology setting to a non-oncology setting, I think 
it's interesting to compare how chronic disease states are managed to how cancer care is managed. You know, we, we look at a lot of pharmacists and how we manage chronic disease states. And we, we know that the patient is, is so important to be a part of their care, you know, in diabetes management and other things like that, where, you know, pharmacists, it's now in many places standard for them to have, you know, detailed, detailed pharma, uh, diabetes education and have them invest in their care. It's kind of interesting that oncology, even though we're, we were so advanced in some ways and others, um, pharmacists have not you know, made it standard to always educate on chemotherapy in some places. Um, you know, I think that that should be the case, right? Past generations, we used to just, you know, especially for older generations, patients that were diagnosed with cancer would just go to an oncologist and be like, well, do with me what you will, right? Um, what's your right. What's your take on that, Tanya? I agree with you. And I think it's, I think you're right. And this is, kind of where this is something that's developed into a passion of mine is how do we create those bridges between internal medicine or other medical specialties and oncology and do some of those same, use some of those same strategies that work. You mentioned diabetes education. On the inpatient floors, there is a diabetes educator that can be consulted or paged very easily to come and talk with a patient. And that's all it takes to get that extra person, you know, to come in and reinforce and teach and reteach patients. And sometimes we have patients who come into the hospital over and over again, and we get a diabetes educator to come see them every time, even if they're not there for a diabetes related problem. But I think that really highlights the importance of ongoing reinforcement. And education, which goes back to that quote that you mentioned about how excellence is not an act, but a habit. And I think that's one of the really important pieces of good education. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot out there in academic literature about how many times it takes for a piece of information to stick with a learner or the student and how it has to be heard over and over again. And I think we often treat our patients like a one and done okay, I gave them this information next, you know, what, what do I need to do next? And we forget that, um, that some of those same concepts from other chronic disease states can be applied successfully to oncology patients. You're right. I, I love how you kind of applied that quote to patients as well, because it, it is true. You know, we assume, you know, we, we kind of say, okay, is the patient educated? <laughs> and then we kind of give them that status. Oh, they're educated or they're not educated. And it's not right. really that simple, right? It's a it's a continuous process where we kind of reinforce and we re-engage and we remind patients of certain information. And, and, and by doing so, that's when they are they are invested. And so I think one thing I'd love to review is just something that we briefly went over in the presentation is this definition of health literacy and and what that looks like from not only a patient side, which is the kind of personal health literacy that was referenced, but also this concept of organizational health literacy, which is something that's been separated out for Healthy People 2030. You know, so personal health literacy, just to remind our listeners, is the degree to which individuals have the ability to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for themselves and others. So that's the personal health literacy, which traditionally has been the definition of health literacy. And then in Healthy People 2030, it's separated out how much or the degree to which 
organizations equitably enable individuals to find, understand, and use information to make health-related decisions. And so, you know, I think we alluded to this, but it's kind of incumbent on each of us to recognize that we have a duty to make sure that our patients are educated in such a way that they maximize their knowledge. Because without knowledge, you cannot have an adequate health literacy. And um, I, I think we're kind of touching on, you know, that quote that we went over, that we are what we repeatedly do. It touches not only on uh, providers or ourselves and how, you know, I could apply that to, you know, we educate and that's how I help patients in, in a large part of what I do in, in the melanoma clinic and, and other clinics in oncology, but also apply it to, to patients and, and other providers that maybe haven't seen immunotherapy as much. And, you know, we, we have to recognize that maybe even our, our providers are not set up for success. You know, you fail to prepare, prepare to fail kind of idea. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we discussed a little bit about that in the talk. I was curious if you've had any kind of uh, experiences, Tanya, that have made you realize or kind of appreciate how, how poorly some of our team members appreciate the concept of health literacy. I think the, the thing that I see the most, and I think it really highlights where pharmacists can help patients, especially with education, is the way that patients are spoken to and the language that's used. So what I usually tell my learners is I assume that my patient has an elementary to middle school reading level until they prove to me otherwise. And it's not meant to be an insult, but it's meant to put, put terminology and complicated concepts in language that is understandable and relatable. And doing so in a way that's not insulting in case you are, you happen to be speaking to a patient who is a physician, but has not revealed that information to you. So I think it, it highlights the importance of literacy, health literacy, and those assumptions being personalized as well. We need to speak to our patients in a way that they understand. I think we focus on, uh, kind of like you said, um, you know, we, we focus on the information that we need to get across and we don't always think about how we need to get it across in a way that's effective. And we, we make assumptions based on where we live or on a patient's appearance or on their background, you know, consciously or subconsciously about what they're able to understand. And I think that's something that, that we underestimate. We underestimate how important it is, how that information is received. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a room with, with other individuals who are speaking to a patient and using terminology like, you know, a nephrologist or uh, we're going to get an EGD today, you know, and patients are glazed over and often don't speak up. And after the fact, sometimes when I go in the room to talk about something completely different, after I've built trust with a patient, I've had patients say to me, now, can you tell me what the doctors were telling me this morning? Because I don't understand. I don't know what a, you know, a DEG is, you know, that's happened. That's happened a number of times. And again, it, it highlights the importance for, for all of us, not just as pharmacists, but for all of us as healthcare providers to make sure that we are communicating with our patients in ways that we can understand. And sometimes that means having a conversation 
with patients if we perceive that they're not understanding something. So it does require some degree of perception and observation on our part. Yeah, you are hitting on so many good points. You know, and I, I think you hit on one really fascinating one to kind of on the subject right now with, you know, the fact that, you know, we got to recognize where patients are coming from. You know, what is their background? Because even in a case where I, I've had many physicians that have been diagnosed with metastatic cancer and I've spoken with them. And even in those cases, you know, sometimes those physicians are retired. You know, they've not been in the field that long. Maybe their field is completely different. You know, when, as we all know, like, you know, I am not, uh, you know, it, when, when we get in our niche, <laughs> we, we start to, you don't use it, you lose it. There's some things that you're not as familiar yeah. with. I think that's the similar concept to, to those, even with a healthcare background, if they've never seen cancer, they've not had cancer before it's foreign. And, and it's, right. it's, it's so important for us to recognize that because without recognition of that, you, you kind of, you make assumptions. And, and there's, right. that's the danger. I think sometimes we make assumptions, A, that patients will understand these big terminology, you know, words that we use in talking about immunotherapy and IRAEs, and B, that maybe there's a patient that we think can understand, but we, we assume incorrectly. And so it's almost like ver constant verification that a patient is understanding, comprehending, but also building up the things we use to educate, how we educate in a way that maximizes that and makes sure that the likelihood that it's understood is ideal, you know. And one so. thing I'll add to that is I think that, you know, in pharmacy school, we learn about the teach back method, right? And I think it applies to things other than inhalers and insulin pits, which I educate patients on. So having having patients repeat back to you, that I think is so it's so important and it's so insightful into what a patient actually understands. And that can show you a lot of a lot of gaps maybe that you of things that you didn't cover or that you need to reinforce yeah and i always start you know i kind of it's funny i i don't know how other others educate but i i always start i i don't just blast right into immunotherapy education i i try to understand like you know where are you coming from what what have you had any family members that have had cancer have they gone through treatment because sometimes it's not even like the understanding of what immunotherapy is. It like goes before that. It's actually what they came into this whole visit with. And sometimes that doesn't ever get touched on with a provider. You know, the provider walks out of the room, like you said, and the patient's kind of left, you know, after the, the mic has been dropped, if you will. And, and they're trying to pick up the pieces and, you know, our nurses, at least I've come, you know, the relationships I've established with my teams is that, sometimes we can bridge that gap, right? There's a gap that's there that the provider doesn't maybe have the time to kind of fill in the pieces and fill in the gaps that they left. And I, I feel like pharmacists are well equipped to do that. They, they can kind of filter through the essentials and they get down to the nitty gritty, the practical side. And that's kind of what we were emphasizing. One thing, Tanya, I wanted to get your thoughts on, I, I'm going to give you some examples from a commonly used um, education website, which I, I know a lot of locations go and use these education sheets. They, they print out these materials, they use them when they talk to patients, but, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with this website. It's great because they have very freely available education information, but um, chemocare.com is one that I, I know is commonly used. And I, I just pulled up their sheet on, on uh, pembrolizumab. And I, I'm just going to throw out some terms that are in, in the list here. 
hypertriglyceridemia, hypoalbuminemia, hypocalcemia, arthralgias. Okay, vitiligo. Am I on the national spelling bee? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> in, in the, I, I just, I throw that out not as a criticism. I think that, you know, politely, we can do better. You know, I think that there's, um, and the irony of it is, you know, I think in a lot of these lists that are generated in education documents, they often go straight by, you know, incidents. And, and I think sometimes it's straight off the label with that they go off incidents. But, you know, the, the very top side effect is also anemia, which actually for, for a variety of reasons is not the most common side effect of Keytruda. But a patient, if they read that, would think that it is, right? The very first thing listed. So you know, I think if we took the time to think about how patients perceive and understand and interpret what we hand to them, I think that will be all the better. You know, I think that immunotherapy, especially because it's such a unique thing, it requires us to design education and, and go over these things in a way that's, that's deliberate and takes into account the mechanism of how these things are happening and, and helping patients to bring them to that understanding. Let's see. So I, I did want to kind of also mention the fact that, you know, I didn't realize this, but looking at the most recent label that I could find, uh, the package insert is also not a great way to start with education, but it's it's now 124 pages long for one of the ICI agents that I looked at. So it, it's not acceptable anymore, I think, for us to just kind of regurgitate lists of, of side effects and things. We, we have to be able to formulate it in such a way that patients can can appreciate it. Um, any other thoughts on that, Tanya? One other thought that just came to mind as we're talking about this and, and the, the website that you referenced is that I think specifically with, with an oncology, I've seen this despite all the other specialty areas I've rotated through oncology patients are so empowered and involved in their own care that a lot of times I find them asking me about things they've read about side effects. And so they'll come to me and say, Hey, my doctor wants to start me on Keytruda, but I was reading that it can cause this, this, and this, you know, and this happens all the time with families, right? It happens every time I go home and see a family member who's, you know, started a new drug or has had a new diagnosis. They want to know if what they've read on Google is true. And I think that's another challenge to the education piece is is trying to find that middle ground between what you know to be true because you've studied it, you've read the trials, you have the references, you've created the wonderful education sheets that you've created. And then you have somebody coming in saying, I found this other stuff. What is, what do I do about this? Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge that that's definitely a challenge with education as well when you have people who do a lot of self, self-educating. Yes. And, you know, that's that kind of touches on a point, you know, I, I hate the concept of outsourcing our education. And, and we have to realize that if we don't educate our patients, they're going to get their information somewhere. Right. And, and we want them to get it from reliable sources that, you know, even if a patient were to go on a website kind of like Chemocare or others, you know, is it formulated in a way that they can actually benefit from it, that they can understand how they can participate in their own care, how they can communicate when an IRAE uh, presents or when it develops. And, and I, I think that that then makes you realize, makes you one realize that, you know, if 
I don't find the time to do it, they're going to just do it on their own. And maybe the information they're getting is not going to be the highest quality. So I think, you know, one question we got at the end of the presentation was, you know, how do you find the time? How do you sort through and, and balance your education to other clinical obligations? Any any initial thoughts on that, uh, Tanya, in terms of um, you know balancing obligations against other things? Because on the on the inpatient side, we all know how much there is to get done. You know, this could probably be its own separate podcast on prioritization, <laughs> and I think you know recognizing inpatient how quickly things do move, and you've got three patients discharging, but you've got another patient who's really sick and another patient who is septic and needs antibiotics dosed right now. Uh, there are a lot of competing obligations. So my approach is I do try to prioritize education as much as I can, knowing that there are there are times when that does have to go on the back burner, but there are usually those opportunities do come up. I try not to wait until discharge, but sometimes with the competing obligations, discharge becomes the opportune time to, to have some of those discussions. In an ideal scenario, though, and I, I don't know, again, this could be its own separate podcast, but you, right. you do have to make time for things that are important. And sometimes, you know, algorithms or managers decide what's important for you, but a lot of times you get to decide that yourself. And so, I recognize there are sometimes like, yes, I need to do this or I need to document this, but this really does not have to be done today. Talking to this patient is more important. I recently gave a patient, um, actually it was a patient who was admitted with immune mediated nephritis. She had poorly controlled nausea and we went through a nausea plan for her and got her on some different medications. And I went and spent about 45 minutes with her one afternoon, but the benefit of doing it before discharge was that I was able to check in with her every day after that for just five minutes and say, how's it going? What do we need to change? And so it allowed time for reinforcement of those concepts. So I think that also highlights that it's good. If you can get those, get those things in earlier on, it allows you more opportunities for reinforcement, which we know patients and just humans in general need to remember things that are important. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I feel like it's easy for us to prioritize things that we think are valuable, but sometimes the patient time we have, the face-to-face -face interactions are the first thing to get cut. And I think that's just so ironic, right? Because if our patients don't see us, how are we going to provide or, or can, you know, show value to them if they're never even seeing us? We're stuck behind a screen. And so I feel like you know, part of it is a fundamental approach. It's saying this is important for me to help this patient manage an IRAE or, or, or do, you know, whatnot, help symptom control um, because that that FaceTime is what matters. They, they see you as a, an active member of the team. You know that you're the best suited to filter through the noise and help them come to a place where they actually understand. And so, you know, I, I had a few things that I, I was going to share that I didn't have time to share when we were presenting, but, you know, I find that scheduling patient education is very helpful. And obviously, you know, from the inpatient side of things, uh, that's not uh, ideal for us to delay education until a patient is admitted. And so I think ideally, we prioritize that, that in the outpatient setting um, and, and make sure that's scheduled there. 
before a patient ever gets admitted. And so, you know, that that time crunch isn't happening on the inpatient side. Um, I think the education design, material design is so important, making sure that that literacy level is kept to as, as good a level as possible, especially for reading level, like we referred to, trying to get it to sixth to eighth grade reading level. It's a big goal to do that. It's very challenging, but I think it can be done. And yeah, I think, you know, we are the best, you know, there's a reason why pharmacists are one of the most, or historically have been one of the most trusted professions. And I think it's because we can kind of say, you know what, here's all the stuff that you could know, but here's what you need to know, you know, and, and that's part of the, one of the unique places that we have, because I think sometimes providers, they, they go at the, you know, here's a lot of stuff. Nurses maybe um, may not know exactly the essentials that need to be described. Sometimes they do, there are exceptions to that, but I think it's owning, owning this. And so I think we've talked about quite a bit. I think it's, um, you know, one thing that I wanted to maybe just ask, and this is a final question, is that whether or not you've had any scenarios in which you thought a patient had not been prepared well enough to be a team player. You know, it's this perspective of what is the role of the patient. And I think owning um, owning their role as a team manager of their own healthcare and oncology is important. Have you had any scenarios like that, Tanya? I've had had a few and a lot of them unfortunately didn't end well. I remember one in particular, actually a, a patient you know as well, who had a pretty significant IRAE, a grade four toxicity after one dose of immunotherapy. And this patient completely deferred decision-making to the providers. Uh, this patient was not sure what to do, was not feeling well. And so, you know, this, this also kind of touches on palliative care, which is, is something that's really important to me and, and making decisions before you're in crisis mode about, about what you want your life to look like. Because a lot of times the decisions that you make can be guided by those things that you've predetermined. But I'll save that soapbox for another time. But this patient oh, yeah. did not, you know, it was the options were presented to this patient, but she was not, you know, there's only so much that I think we can expect from our patients, right? We, ha we have three immunosuppressants that we're considering. Here are the side effects of this one. Here are the side effects of this and Here are the side effects of this one. Pick one. It's not like going to a store and picking a sweater to wear to your Christmas dinner. It's, it's a lot more than that. And I think sometimes we do oversimplify things for patients. And in those cases, we have to, it's, it's really hard, Jordan. I feel like I'm babbling now, but it's, there's not right. an easy answer to this and how I think it, I think it just goes back to what, you know, what your big portion of this this whole series is about and that's empowering patients to make better make better decisions and how do we yeah. do that and i think i mean what you're alluding to is kind of um what i feel is important is transparency and i think sometimes when we kind of hide behind these big words we're not being transparent with patients and i think it's important just to focus on the ways in which we can say well you know sometimes we don't know the right answer and sometimes Patients have to kind of partake in that as well and understand that we don't know. Um, but it, the important thing, I think, is making sure that as, as in as much as we do know, patients are prepared to make decisions based on what we do and uh, the best information at hand. So 
Uh, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Tanya and all of you for joining us. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. And don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com uh, forward slash manage IRAE for our webinars, additional podcasts, and online commentaries. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with us. And be sure to subscribe to ASHB Podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.